What is up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here with Schwan Hughes for episode 198 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Five years strong, almost 200 episodes strong, and schwan has been here every step of the way. So I want you to let everybody know how you are doing. Um, busy as always, uh, picking up some new kids to train, uh, writing articles, and then uh, contributing to an MMA book that should be coming out next month or so maybe yeah i'm looking forward to that man because um we all know you can't write for write worth shit so i <laughs> see what what book you have to have some input on i can't wait to see it let me know and we will gladly promote it on this show um before we get into today's content as always i want to say thank you for taking the time to listen to our show every week as often as we go you can always find us on mmaratings.net and.com which is the flagship where you find all the content that we've been producing over the years you can check out our social media at MMA Ratings Net on both Instagram and Twitter. Schwan Humes, you can hit him up at Black Jordan Breen. And myself, you can find me at R Garcia underscore sports, both platforms. Our podcast is available across multiple podcasting outlets, including Apple uh, Podcast Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Anchor. And you can also go over to MMA Ratings on YouTube and check out our content there. Uh, today, Schwan and I will be diving back into some MMA topics that we have not been here to talk about for the last week, including looking back at how Jan Blahovich defeated Israel Adesanya, the craziness over the Peter Jan uh, Aljamain Sterling fight, Amanda Nunez, um, Leon Edwards, and Bilal Mohammed, and a couple other topics as well, as and talking about UFC 261 and uh, that great fight from Saturday between. Uh, Estrada and Gomez. We're also going to talk to Shawan about that too. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. And going back to UFC 259, we saw Jan Blahovich defeat Israel Adesanya five round uh, decisions. And I think 49 uh, 46 was a couple of the scores where he, most people saw him winning three of the five at least. Some saw it four, four of the five rounds. Shawan, what did you think about this fight and the, and the strategy that Blahovich employed? For that main event title bout, uh, it really went the way I thought it was going to at the end of the day because I thought Bohovic was going to use his size, his durability, steady pressure, and defensive awareness to kind of get to his spots. My only concern was was he going to be able to navigate um, Israel Adesanya's athletic advantage, especially since Israel wasn't going to try to gain weight for the for the light heavyweight title shot. He was going to stay around his normal weight as a middleweight. I, I thought that maybe the quickness, the explosiveness, the power might be a little bit too much for him. And I, I didn't know that he would be able to consistently get to his spots against Adesanya. But as I said before, I said if, if he can get to his spots, I fully expect him to be able to control Adesanya and to break him down. And that's all he did. Um, early on, Adesanya was feigning him, landing shots. But the thing about it is Adesanya usually likes to scare people off with his power. He hits them a couple times. Guys can't get to him. And guys get dissuaded. They don't. They won't continue to pressure either because they physically can't take it or mentally they kind of break. Um, Bohovich never stopped putting pressure on him. Bohovich never stopped trying to get to him. He was he attacked the body, which is something I've repeatedly said people need to do, do against Adesanya because he's got a long thin frame. And even when he was making those takedown attempts and he wasn't getting them, people were just like, "Oh, look at Israel! He's defending the takedown." 
takedown attempts are kind of like throwaway punches sometimes. Sometimes you throw them to put keep pressure on someone or to make them give you the opportunity you want to get. And Blahovich was just constantly get his, getting his hands on Adesanya. He was constantly putting his weight on him. And for a guy who's going to come in 30, maybe 40 pounds lighter, that just wore on him. Adesanya is usually pretty strong. He's at least on even turns with guys. And against Blahovich, he didn't have that. I think Blahovich kind of wore him down with the constant pressure, wore him down with the, with the takedown attempts, wore him down even in those brief moments where they were clinching or, or tied it up a little bit. And ultimately, I thought that's what, what turned the day. Um, Adesanya is really good when he can control pace, when he can counter you, when he's got you kind of just marching to his beat. But when you can get into certain spots, he's not great. He's not great when guys are countering him. He's not great when guys are jabbing at him. He's not great when a guy can force him to be in a position he doesn't want to be into. Usually when he gets taken down, he transitions out. But in this case, Blahovich took him down and controlled him. And we found out Israel Adesanya's game isn't nearly as good as we thought it was when he can't use his athleticism to create scrambles. Off his back, he, he didn't really have anything. He couldn't defend. He couldn't counter. He couldn't get up. And um, Blahovich just kind of imposed his will on him. It wasn't the most dynamic performance, but it was very workmanlike, very professional, very to the point. And sometimes that's all it takes. I mean, my, my concerns were that the weight and the durability would be too much for Adesanya. And um, that's what it ended up being. It was mostly a matter of good strategy and physical tools which determined the fight. Blahovich didn't give him any wide-open shots. He never got too wild. He just kept chipping away, chipping away, chipping away until he got to the point of no return, and Adesanya couldn't turn the fight back around. Before we dive into a lot about what Adesanya didn't do right here, I want to talk about Blahovich first, and is this something that you think is is he better than we all thought he was? Um, are we did we downplay him coming into this fight? Most people thought he was going to get blitzed and get defeated, and we were going to see Adesanya become a double champion. But instead, Blahovich stuck to his game, did his work, and got the victory there. Were we downplaying him a little bit too much coming into that fight? I think the whole problem is a lot of people don't actually watch. I don't think a lot of people paid attention to his fights. They just looked at the wins and losses and said, oh, well, this is what happened. He fought an athletic guy, got knocked out. Fought an athletic guy, was getting beat up by Reyes, and then Reyes, Reyes he, he made an adjustment and finished him. But they saw him he, they saw him be really flummoxed and frustrated with athleticism. And I can't blame people for going with Adesanya because Adesanya had pretty much stepped up to every challenge he faced. So he has momentum on his side. He's a multiple, multiple, multiple defending champion. He's fighting a better class of fighter. It's easy to say that Blahovich had nothing for him, but I, I really think it comes down to the fact that a lot of people hadn't watched Blahovich fight. Nobody was talking about Blahovich's jab. It was surprising to me that people weren't talking about Blahovich's length either. He's a big, long fighter. And even when this fight was announced, I told people there's avenues for him to win. He's longer. He's defensively disciplined. And he, he applied, when he gets behind his jab, he applies steady pressure. And Adesanya used, used to guys who he can hit at will. When he's faced guys he couldn't hit at will, and I said this before the fight, he didn't look as great. When Yo Romero didn't give him openings, he didn't look dynamic against Yo Romero. When he fought Anderson Silva, he didn't look dynamic against Anderson Silva. And the only thing Anderson Silva did was make him work to find his spots. Anderson Silva wasn't just going to serve himself up. And even though Blon, Jan Blahovich was applying pressure, he didn't just serve himself up. He didn't leave himself open to kicks. He didn't walk into punches. He was very methodical in what he did. So a lot of people just 
they didn't watch the fight. They didn't understand what he did. They didn't understand the improvements he made. Because I think people just didn't pay attention to him. He was like an afterthought. They, we had this huge superstar, maybe a guy who could break out of the sport and be a crossover star who was on a roll. So all the eyes were on him. All the points of, points of contention were really circled around Adesanya and his role and his dominance and his athleticism. A lot of people weren't paying attention to the many things that uh, Blond Bohovich does. Um, I mean, there's a couple of podcasts, uh, Heavy Hands, Friends of the Show, uh, Connor Rebush and uh, Phil McKenzie. They talked about it. They made arguments similar to what I was making, but a lot of people just completely dismiss Jan's chance because he's a big, slow, not particularly athletic guy. And they just figure here's a better athlete who's on, who's on a roll, who's faced better opposition and is a dynamic striker. And that's all it's going to take. But you have to look at the nuance of fighting, the, sub, the subtleties as far as strategy, uh, physical traits, and the character of the fighters. And um, people dismissed that completely with Jan. They didn't give him his respect for beating Reyes. They didn't really give him respect for anything. They just thought he was a big, slow guy who was, who was in a weak division. And he is in a weak division, but he's a very good fighter in a weak division. And uh, I know this, nobody's asking me this, but if you see this fight and you tell me John Jones could, wouldn't have beat Israel Adesanya, I don't know what to tell you. I do not know what to tell you because Bohovich did something that Jones has been doing in his past couple fights. You don't get the takedowns, but you wear your opponent down with takedowns. Their volume drops off, their accuracy drops off, their power drops off, and later in the fight, you can get those takedowns and score those points. You can back them up with strikes. You can trap them on the cage and kind of work them over a little bit. It's a, it's a, pl- it's a long-term plan that's risky, but if you have the conditioning, it works. You just make them – because attempting takedowns takes a lot of energy – but guess what? Defending a takedown, especially against a guy with 30 pounds on you, takes a lot of energy as well. And nobody ever talks about that part. They're just like, oh, he's getting tired because he's defending takedowns. The guy has to get back up or the guy has to keep sprawling off of you. He's getting tired, too. And if he's not a natural wrestler or grappler, it's going to affect him a lot worse than it is the other guy. And Jan's a much more tenured grappler. And at least as far as the conditioning and experience, is a much better grappler slash wrestler than Adesanya. So that actually brings me to the third piece of this topic that I wanted to talk about that didn't quite, I didn't want to focus on John Jones, but I wanted to ask, are there any middleweights that looked at this fight, looked at the strategy that Blahovich uh, employed, especially with the takedowns in open space, that you think can apply that game to pick up a win over Adesanya at 185? Well, the problem isn't so much the wrestling him. The problem is, is having the it's how you get to the wrestling points. Something Damian Maya used to be really good at. Something that Jan Blahovich is good at to a degree. They're using correct footwork and a and uh, active guard and positioning to shield them from getting overwhelmed with strikes. It's hard to hit them really really clean. It's hard to put four five six shots together. And a lot of guys in the multi, in the middleweight division they don't have that kind of poise. Jared Cannonier he doesn't even like to wrestle as big and strong as he is. He doesn't, he doesn't actually wrestle. He's he's trying to get in heavy exchanges. Robert Whitaker has a good wrestling background, but he doesn't really ever wrestle. He wrestles more defensively, and he won't really offensively wrestle until he's asserted himself on the feet. Derek Brunson, once again, is a pretty good wrestler, but he's never, he's never he really hasn't shown himself the ability to stand up to extensive punishment long enough to get his wrestling going if he can't get those takedowns immediately. There's a lot of people with the, with the, with the skill set but I don't know that they have the durability or the physicality as of a Blahovich. Blahovich is very big. He's very strong. He's very physical. He hits very hard. 
it's hard to really dictate pace to him because he can physically impose himself. I don't know how many middleweights outside of maybe Yo Romero, who's not there anymore, can really impose themselves. If 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 Chris Weidman had a chin, I would say he could do something like this because that's his whole thing: pace, using his length, walking you down, throwing volume, chipping away at you until he can get you where he wants you. But most of those guys aren't wrestling based in their fighting in there, and they don't. They usually kind of go to their wrestling as a fail safe. I, I haven't seen that kind of uh, strategic awareness from them, or that that point of emphasis for them. You know, everybody's trying to get a quick takedown. It takes a certain kind of poise and a cer- certain mental toughness to go round after round and be getting lit up and be getting countered and still apply that pressure and still look for that takedown. You know, I've missed two, three, four times, but I'm going to go for a fifth. I missed the fifth time, sixth time, seventh time was a charm, and I finally got it. I don't know how many of those guys actually have that. I, I think it's something lots of guys can imitate, but I don't know this is something lots of guys will imitate because they don't have those physical tools, and I'm not sure they have the mindset necessary. What about Marvin Vittori? That's one name you didn't mention, and wrestling is what helped Marvin get to that split decision loss against Adesanya the first time around. Do you think he can be the individual that can do enough with takedowns in open space to perhaps get a, a victory here? And we're looking at him fighting Darren Till next, I think, um, early April, I believe, they're fighting on ABC. Is there anything that you can expect to see out of him in that fight that may help him come out as a front runner to face Adesanya. I mean, it, he matches up with him well. The only thing is, it's kind of like when Connor fought uh, Nate Diaz the first time, and then he beat him the second time, and then he went to Eddie Alvarez. If he would have fought Eddie Alvarez before he fought Nate, I think Eddie Alvarez could have got him because he was on that roll. He was kind of confident. He he hadn't he he had he hadn't been shown that he could be stopped. And the same thing goes for Adesanya. I think if Vittori would have got a rematch with him a little bit earlier, maybe. But after a loss like this, Adesanya is a smart enough guy, and I think adjustments will be made, first of all. And second of all, I don't know that Vittori is willing to consistently walk through fire. I mean, he got taken. I mean, Adesanya is already a better wrestler than he was then. He's he's a little bit better with his spacing and the, and the counters he picks. And I don't I don't know that Vittori is a good enough defensive fighter. Part of the success um, Jan had was his ability to defend kicks. I don't know if Vittori can defend kicks or punches consistently well, and I don't know that he can pressure without walking into something big. Maybe not big enough to stop him, but big enough to score points. And beating Darren Till, I mean, it'd be a good win, but that that doesn't necessarily tell me anything about his ability to beat um, Israel Adesanya. Now, if it is Israel Adesanya's confidence is shaken and he's not the same fighter mentally, I could see it happening pretty easily, but a lot of things have to go right, and I don't know that I've seen Vittori improve enough as far as his footwork and his striking defense, where I know that he can make his wrestling a consistent threat instead of an occasional one. Good stuff there. So I really appreciate those thoughts on that. I want to talk about the other two title fights as well. And Amanda Nunez, she absolutely blitzed Megan Anderson. This is the fight where everyone's like, this will be the biggest upset to occur in mixed martial arts history if Anderson found a way to get it done, and she did not get stopped in the first round. Did she blitz Anderson, or did Anderson just not, just, did Anderson just kind of essentially not show up because she was scared? She looked scared. She backed yeah. up, into, she backed up into the cage off of faint. Nunes wasn't even throwing at her. She was just backing up. She had the front, she had the front kick to the face, to the body. She had the long jab there, the long, the long, the long, long, long range strikes. She didn't do any of that. She literally 
got into the position she wanted, had Nunez closer to the cage where she could have pressured her. And instead of that, she just stood there with an extended stance. And then Nunez started fading her and coming forward, and she just started backing up. And then as soon as Nunez hit her, it's like she she lost all all willingness or, or, or ability to engage. And she went for that terrible takedown and and was just summarily finished. It, to me, it just looked like she froze. It yeah, like, it, a lot of people were talking about how she looked walking to, like, you know how they do the, they film the individuals walking into the arena that night, and she, a lot of people were talking about she didn't look good, and, you know, I I, I don't really take that as too much grain of salt, you know, it's MMA Twitter, and people say foolish shit on that space, but she did not look like she came prepared to fight, and you can kind of see that in what her statements have been after the fact, but she got polished off pretty quickly, but what what is the most interesting piece of, of information coming out of that is that according to Anderson herself, she was talking about it while playing Twitch or playing on Twitch, that the featherweight division may be completely done. She's heard that, according to her, that the division is being folded. What do you think about that, Shawan? Is that the right move to make at for the UFC at 145 pounds for the ladies just to get rid of that whole group? Well, I mean, it makes sense. They don't really have, I mean... Megan Anderson is what two and two in the division. She lost to Spencer. She lost to Home. She beat Zingano. So she's like two and three. She's two and three in the th- in the three people she beat. Zingano that was kind of a fluke. She kicked her in the eye uh, with her toe. But let's just say that's legit. But the other two got- girls she beat, they're not world class fighters, much less world class featherweights. So she beat them. She looked impressive. But neither one of them had a quarter of the talent that um, Nunes had or even Cyborg had. It's just not very deep. All they have is Anderson, they had Spencer, they have Nunez, and they had this other girl, the, the two other girls they brought in, and now one. That's like five people. There's not even enough depth for people to build themselves up or develop their skill set or their identity to even have a good chance against uh, against someone like of Nunez's character, cal- cal- caliber. You just have a bunch of big girls who really don't have the experience or the athleticism or the skill set. Nunez can beat them just on athleticism alone. I don't. I don't see the reason for the card, the fight, the division, because most of the girls who, who want to fight featherweight or can, uh, most of them fight in Bellator. And, and Bellator has got, Bellator has at least got four or five legitimately quality featherweights. The same can't be said for the UFC. So I don't know why they would continue to do it outside of having Amanda defend it. But even if she defends it, you have to bring somebody in and just throw her in a title fight. How much money is Amanda going to make off of that? You, you can't build that fighter. There's not a division to build them off. So it's uh, you know, it, it it sounds nice that she's the double champ, but she's a double champ over you know people say light heavyweight's a weak division. It's nothing like featherweight. The second best featherweight in the world fights in Bellator, and at least she's got at least four or five girls she can fight. Uh, Nunes really didn't have anybody. If she fights featherweights, it's gonna be mostly blown up bantamweights moving up to try to get a shot at her. Not not anybody who's a legitimate quality featherweight. Do you think she goes over to another promotion? I was talking that man. She should she should go into professional wrestling. I think that would be a good space for. Her. I don't Anderson? think she's going to do it. Yeah, Anderson. I, I think that I don't think she's going to do it. But where do you think she turns up after this? I I always thought maybe she should. I mean, except for the fact that they have seasons, I really thought she could go to PFL because it'd be some bigger girls. But the, the the talent level at one fifty five is even less than it is at one forty five. So I feel like she could, she'd have a 80, 90% chance of getting to the finals to face Kayla Harrison. Yes, yeah, she'd probably lose, 
but at least she can make some money, put some wins together, and get some momentum back. I guess more likely she'll go to Bellator because she would still be one of the better better uh, featherweights in Bellator. I mean, she top, she'd definitely be like a top 10 type featherweight. And maybe she could put a couple wins together and finagle some, maybe get a rematch against Kat Zingano. That has a storyline. Uh, maybe she could finally work her way up and get, get to um, Cyborg. That'd probably be the best option as far as number of fights and being able to maximize whatever fan base she has. Um, I don't know that she has a personality for professional wrestling. She has a look, but I don't know if she has a personality. I don't know that she she can pull that off. I, I, I've never gotten that impression from her. But I mean, if they're willing to pay her money, then yeah, she should go for it. I don't know that she has a high Q rating, so I don't know why the WWE or NXT would, would invest a lot of money in her because I don't know what the payoff would be. I just want to see her kick someone in the face. That's really all I want. And if we're talking about people getting hit in the face with devastating shots, Peter Yan, he lost his title to Aljamain Sterling via disqualification when he need Sterling, who was on the ground, clearly a down fighter in the fourth round. Now, before that, the first round started out very well for Sterling. He was being very active, but he could not keep the pace up. From that point on, the wheels started to slowly fall off, where it was clear that not only was Sterling not winning the fight, but I felt like he was melting in the moment where he had the spotlight on him at the biggest moment in his career, and he was falling apart. Even during in-between rounds, you could hear his corner talking to him, and he just didn't seem completely there. So, Shawan, before we talk about the knee, let's talk about the strategy that Aljamain Sterling showed in this fight for those first, I would say, just to say the first three rounds. Was he on the right track, or did something seem off to you? Um, I thought, to a certain degree, he was on the right track because it allowed him to set a pace it allows him to kind of not – Peter Yan is kind of a slow starter. He has to get momentum. So it seemed to me Al Jermaine was trying to take away his opportunities to build momentum by throwing volume and um, controlling the pace and controlling where the fight took place, keeping him on the defensive, hoping that that would open up takedown opportunities. Or worse, maybe he could just throw a lot of volume and keep Peter Yan defensive or maybe overwhelm him. And, and to a certain degree, that's smart because Jan couldn't have possibly expected um, Aljamain to come out there and throw like that and be that aggressive and be willing to take those chances. Uh, so it, it, to that regard, it was a good strategy because it allowed, it allowed him to get an early lead. It allowed him to kind of set a tone. But it's like I said, and it's like you mentioned, but it's a rule I always tell people, you can't, don't fight at a pace that you can't either. At the b- best, you have to be able to build on it. At worst, you have to maintain it. Because even if you slow just a half step, that person you're fighting notices. The judge notices, and they that marks against you for the judges. And as a fighter, it gives you confidence because you're like, oh, he's already, he's already slowed down. He can't keep this up, and if he can't keep this up, then I'm going to start punishing him. And Aljamain just could not maintain it. One, he didn't have the cardio or physicality. All those takedown attempts and getting in those clinches and throwing knees and kicks and trying to get off shots in close, warm down. The takedown attempts, warm down. And two, even though he's a better striker. He's not a really great striker on his front foot, not throwing volume, not pressuring somebody. So in throwing those strikes, he's exposing himself to being countered. He doesn't have the defensive skills to slip and roll and parry and come back with shots over the top or to the body when, when a guy is fired, when a guy is exchanging with him. So that's how we got dropped in the first round. 
and and to be honest, after the first round, that was probably the the best rider he could start the fight off with. I think I would have gone a little bit more technical, use my range, try to switch it up, box him a little bit. Like, okay, I came right at you. So now when you're coming at me, I'm going to box and kind of use some angles, use my length. But it's like he didn't have any confidence in his ability to win a technical striking match or a strategical one, and he just kept doing the same thing. And the worst part about it wasn't that he set the space he couldn't maintain, is that he's not doing any damage while he's setting the space. You're throwing all these shots, but they're landing on short, they're landing on shoulders and arms. And against wrestlers, you might chip him down against grapplers. You might chip him down against MMA strikers. You might chip him down with somebody with Peter Yan's experience. You're not going to wear him down. You're not going to rattle him, punching him in the shoulders and the arms like that. You don't have the power nor the consistency in your striking to have a secondary effect on him. So Aljo was just wearing himself out and slowly getting chipped up and slowly getting broken down. And by the time, the, before we got to the knee, it, the fight wasn't competitive. He, he was just defending. He's just getting hit. He's just covering up. He's just putting his hands down. He wasn't doing anything offensively. It wasn't like there was a heated exchange and he took a bad shot. He was pretty much on the defensive, almost, almost looked like he was giving up on the fight, getting beaten pillar to post, and then he got need and he got finished illegally. But the fi- fight was so lopsided. That's what made the, the need so egregious because it's like Peter Yan didn't need that. You're crushing this man. You're breaking his spirit. And then you just throw this knee out of, out of the blue for no reason. That's what made it look so bad because of the nature of the beating he was giving him. So I, I, I think it was a good idea to come out to start with. But Aljamain knew he couldn't maintain that pace. His team had to know he couldn't maintain that pace. He wasn't doing enough damage. I don't know why they stuck with that. Open up the first round with that. Cool. Set the table. Create a position where that guy's in the hole and he has to come after you. But to continuously just throw that volume and, and make those wrestling attempts, it was just a bad, bad strategy. And halfway through round two, it was clear he wasn't going to be able to keep it up. And it was starting to get bad. It was starting to get bad for him. Is there anything you saw that Aljamain can take and then say, this is the foundation that we can build around for that rematch? I mean, he can build the fact that Jan is a consistently slow starter. You're always going to be able to get a certain amount of work done against him early. Uriah Faber did, Jimmy Rivera did. Everybody gets a certain amount of work done against Peter Jan because he takes a second to, to round into form. But the thing about it, when he rounds into form, you have to have athletic you have to have physical tools and you have to have technical answers to what he's doing otherwise it just turns into a one-sided beating um like kind of aldo started slow with him but then aldo could rely on his skills his timing his positioning his balance his combinations aldo doesn't have that or he doesn't have faith in it and while i think he could still come out fast and then kind of try to try to make it more of a range fight where he's mixing up long range strikes and feints and alternating between that and takedown attempts to kind of keep peter on off balance and outpoint him at this point, you have to wonder if mentally Al Jermaine believes he can beat Peter Young because Peter Young didn't just beat him up on the feet. He was out wrestling him. He was throwing him. He was sweeping him. He's leg tripping him. He's just tossing him. Al Jermaine couldn't do anything. He couldn't wrestle him. He couldn't hurt him on the feet. And for all that volume and pressure he put on him, he wasn't able to really build a, a decisive lead. I mean, it was like a one round. Even that one round was close because he got dropped. So it's like he was never able to really get any sort of control of the fight. I really don't think that Peter Young was ever not in control of the fight. So while there's things he could do, I don't know if mentally he's going to buy in enough to do them and really commit to them in the way it, it takes to win because he was being so thoroughly outclassed. It wasn't just like, like I said, it wasn't a freak elbow or knee at the last second. He was getting dominated. He looked like he wanted to quit. 
So last question was asked about this before we move on to another DQ finish. Or it wasn't a DQ finish, but this 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 weekend's action. Do you think titles should change hands on disqualifications? This is an interesting topic that this was the first time it ever happened with Aljamain Sterling's victory. He is now the UFC bantamweight champion. And the question is, should titles change hands? People were joking a little bit about what happens in pro wrestling where titles don't change hands on disqualifications because of the storylines. But this, a lot of people were upset that Aljamain is champion now. And there's reasons behind that. We're not going to dive into that too much here. But are we living in a space where that title should be vacated? Where instead of Jan or Sterling being a champion, the title should be vacated and there should be an immediate rematch. Now, that does cause a situation where a fighter may decide to get disqualified if they are getting getting their ass handed to them. And there's some ways around that, such as going to the scorecards if it's beyond like 10 minutes of a fight, for example. We can go to the scorecards. Whoever Whoever was ahead is the winner. Even still, though, what are your thoughts about the, the fact that the title in the UFC changes hands on a disqualification the way that we saw on a couple of Saturdays ago? And should that be something that continues? I mean, if you know the rules and you break them, it, it's, I mean, whether it's right or wrong, the fact is the rules are the rules. And I know this, is, this, this probably isn't the case, but I tend to believe if it was a tight, tightly contested fight and there was a late strike, I don't think the reaction would have been as bad. I mean, we saw Jermaine Durandepi like hit Holly Holm with a three punch combination two seconds after the bell. And they just kept letting her do it. She did like two or three rounds in a row. They never called it. They never took, I don't remember them taking a point. I don't remember them threatening to cancel the fight. And, and Holm was pretty rocked. Um, Chad Mendez got blasted a couple of times by Jose Aldo. And, and you can't tell me that didn't change the, the nature of the fight. Cause he was almost out on his feet after taking those shots. We've seen egregious things done before. I think what really impacted it was the nature of how badly Peter Yan was dominating him. It's like, what are you doing this for? Like, you're winning. You have the fight won. All you got to do is hang out for another couple minutes and it's over. Like, that's what made it look so bad because this guy's capitulating. This guy's can't get up. This guy is looking to avoid exchanges. And then out of the blue, you knee him in the face. That's you. You're pretty much complete. You're pretty, pretty much completely dominating him. So it made it look worse. But the fact of the matter is the rules are the rules. And if you go so far out of the rules to where you put someone at risk of harm like that, then you have to be punished. I mean, if it was a regular fight, you'd lose it for being disqualified. So if it's a title fight, I can't have you win the fight and then not get the title. I'm not saying I, I support it, but it makes sense to me because you did something egregious. The UFC is very inconsistent with how they they kind of go over the rules. But when you do something that bad, that obvious, and that uh, vicious, you have to expect some kind of reaction. So whether I agree with it or not, I can't, ar- I can't argue with it due to the nature of the foul. So what do you think? So let's move on to this past weekend's fight and how that translates into what we saw in the main event there. Uh, Leon Edwards was rolling early in, in the fight. He looked very good against uh, Bilal Muhammad. He was scoring pretty much consistently with a lot of his strikes. He was warned for his fingers, and then he gets uh, Muhammad in the eye very badly to the point where Muhammad was bleeding from the eye. He was in tears. It was very bad. I think he received the minimum uh, of a uh, 
suspension today, you know, basically where he, he can have no contact. That fight was ended in a no contest. So if that's the situation, why the change in rules here? Like, what is the issue with MMA rules or the regulations that people tend to not, like, they have no idea how to know, or excuse me, they have no idea how to address these situations when they occur because both this and the Sterling situation were in the hands of the referee who they, they kind of pushed them back into the hands of the fighters. And now we have these two different situations that were managed differently. When you look at what happened with Leon Edwards and with, and with Aljamain Sterling, do you see a big difference there or is there a bigger issue? Uh, I mean, it could be a bigger issue. Like I said before, the, the thing that makes it so suspect is the is the way it ended. I mean, um, in this fight, it was competitive. I mean, it was somewhat competitive. Bilal was kind of getting beat. He was getting outclassed. But it wasn't like he was almost finished. It wasn't like he was getting completely dominated. I could see people having a different reaction from it just because, like I said, the, the circumstances. It's like if you have somebody in a submission and they're tapping out and then you break their arm, like, they can't get out. You got them set there. You don't have to break their arm. You don't. You don't have to do that. That's the fight's over. It's like we got two seconds. All you got to do is hold on. And you just pop their arm for no reason. When Jan did it, it looked worse because Sterling's on his hands and knees. He can't defend himself. He can't get. He can't even get Jan away from him or off of him. And Jan's completely dominating the fight. And it just seemed like a more cruel and like there was something else behind what he did in the Bilal fight. Uh, People get poked in the eye all the time, whether on purpose or by accident. There's been numerous fights in the UFC where somebody's gotten poked and knocked out. It happened to Randy Couture. Stipe Miocic got his eyes almost put to the point of blindness by Daniel Cormier. Daniel Cormier got poked in the eyes by John Jones. I mean, there's certain fouls that are going to be considered more allowable, even if by the nature of the foul, it should be punished the same way. I think this is going to be very interesting to watch because the UFC is going to have to, they're going to have to find a way to get this consistently dealt with across the board. And it's a struggle because they've given the, the creation and delegation of rules back to the athletic commissions. And that's why we have different rules in New Jersey than we may have in New York, than is different in Nevada, than is different in Texas, than is different in California and everywhere in between. It's going to be a problem, but they need to deal with this because these situations can continue to occur. They're lucky that they haven't happened as much as possible, as much as they as they could have, especially with the finger pokes to the eye. They're lucky that the situation hasn't gotten out, as out of hand as it could have. The thing I've learned about the UFC is that they don't have to do anything because there's a lot of things they should have addressed or fixed by now so they wouldn't have these situations. But the fact of the matter is it's not it's not something they care about. They get to flaunt and enforce the rules whenever they feel like it. And fans just go along with whatever they say. They say, this is the foul and it's not, they're okay with it. If they say, this isn't a foul, it's not. If they say this is, is it's not somebody makes a comment after the fight, he gets thrown out of the, he gets thrown out of the organization. Somebody sucker punches some, somebody hits somebody after the fight's already been stopped. They get to stay in. There's no real consistency and the UFC doesn't seem to have any interest in and showing any consistency. I mean, at some point they might have to address it, but they haven't done it. And these, and as far as the eye pokes, this has been going on for years. So I don't know why all of a sudden they feel any more pressure to do it. If anything else, they like the 
they like the extra talking points and the extra media coverage it provides them when something dramatic or uh, controversial happens. I mean, at the end of the day, it helps their bottom line, and that's all they really care about. How do you think Leon Edwards looked before the eye poke? Did he look really good coming back in this fight? I didn't, I didn't think he was going to stop Muhammad. He did have, have him hurt at some points in the first round, but what do you think about how he looked before the eye poke occurred? Well, I mean, I thought he looked good, but it, Muhammad, I don't know that Muhammad's a a top flight welterweight. I mean, he took the, he got the fight because he took it on short notice. Nothing about Muhammad's resume or his his resume or how he's performed against the better welterweights he's fought says that he should be in a position to be challenging um, someone like. Uh, Someone, someone like that, Leon Edwards, someone who who's in that position. Bilal's not considered a top ten or top seven welterweight. He got the fight because he could, he he was willing to take it on short notice. So no matter how good Edwards looked against him, it wasn't against the cream the cream of the crop. It wasn't against a guy who who hasn't had some miles put on him. It wasn't against a guy who's been on this tremendous win streak and been dominating for years and years. It's been against a guy who's been kind of hit or miss in the UFC. Sometimes put a couple together. Sometimes put a couple together on the other side of the of the bracket. So I, it didn't really tell me a lot. It told me that Leon Edwards is a class above Bilal, but I knew that before we had this fight. I didn't see him face any adversity. I didn't see him have to work past a certain point of discomfort. So I, I still don't know anything about him that I didn't know. I still don't know anything new about him. I know he's a big, strong guy with some athletic talent and a good plan A as far as being a fighter. I don't know what happens if plan A doesn't work. I don't know what happens if he gets into a pitch battle with a guy he can't he can't dictate pace pace against, and I didn't find that out either. He fought a second or third tier welterweight. He looks fairly good doing it, but ultimately he d- didn't get the win because he broke the rules. So I mean, he's he's going to try and move on to bigger and better things. I don't necessarily know we need a rematch because it's not really the sexiest fight. But it didn't tell me anything I didn't know about him, and it doesn't make me any more convinced he's the man to beat the champion right now. Yeah, and we'll be talking about the champion in a second. Is there anything else that stood out to you from these cards? I mean, me, I, you know, I'm always going to talk about our, our my favorite fighter, one of my favorite fighters, um, Angela Hill, and I'm totally being facetious about that. But she won a decision victory over Ashley Yoder. And, man, I didn't realize Ashley Yoder looked so bad fighting until I watched her fight against Angela Hill. And was working this this fight. She looked really badly, but um, it was a perfect fight for Angela Hill to kind of get out there and just kind of showcase a little bit. She didn't get a stoppage. She was landing some good shots against Yoder, who was just not adequately prepared to be at this level, even though she's had multiple fights in the octagon. But outside of that, Shawan, what else stood out to you on these two cards from the last two weekends? Um. Like like you said, it was good to see Angela Hill get a win. I I don't know what would have happened to her if she would have lost to Ashley Yoder. Like it would it would have been hard to, to defend her or to really as a fan or anybody else, it just would have been impossible to be quite honest. Um, I don't know. I didn't. I w- I wasn't really hung up on this card. Um, I thought it was a good card, with good fights, but I think the uh, the fights with with real merit or real real meat on the bones was pretty much the Leon Edwards Bilal Muhammad fight. And even though Angela Hill was in a fight where she was tremendously favored and outgunned her opponent incredibly, it was still important because Angela Hill, 
because of who she is and how she fights is never really too far from get, getting on a street and being considered one of the better fighters in the division and possibly getting a title fight. So this was an important fight for her because she was fighting a person she was so much better than that her looking, her struggling with her or her losing would just be catastrophic to her career. But, but those were really the fights I was keyed in on. Good stuff. So let's move on. Let's talk about some news from this week where the big thing is UFC 261. Dana White announced that they're going back to Jacksonville for this fight, and they intend on having a full crowd at, um, I, I don't remember what the name of the location is, but the full crowd in attendance is expected to be 15,000 people. Now, we are still in the middle of a global pandemic. Vaccines are rolling out, but they are not as available to everyone as they need to be for something like this to go on. I don't know if you've been following, but I wrote about this yesterday as well. Vince McMahon over in the WWE is also trying to have an event on April 10th and 11th with 45,000 people in attendance on each night. So here we are, you know, 500 and I think 525,000, 26,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 and we're still trying to rush to get back to sports. And that should be the last thing on our list, but here we are still trying to do this. Schwann, is this the time for this to go down? What are your thoughts about us trying to, us potentially seeing a full crowd in Jacksonville for a indoors too, a full crowd indoors for a fight in as little as three to four weeks? I mean, I don't think it's the right time for it, but the fact of the matter is sports like this rely heavily on live gates. And while the UFC was willing to cut some corners so that they could be the only show in town or one of the few only shows in town, the fact of the matter is they're not going to be able to continuously, continuously um, apply their trade if they aren't making a certain kind of money. And part of that money comes from people putting butts in seats, people buying merchandise, people buying drinks and and whatever and bringing business business to whatever area they're in whether it's florida las vegas california austin wherever it's that's part of the nature of the business same thing with boxing you can only make so much money you can only hype a fight so much when there's not going to be fans there anytime there's not fans there there's a certain amount of money lost unless you do a huge pay-per-view number unless you have some huge sponsors to soak up soak up that 11 you know like dana white says after every event we made 2.4 gate 4.4 4.4 the gate, 5 point, whatever. That's a lot of money to, to, just, to just eliminate right off the top. That's a lot of money to me, eliminate right off the top. And at the end of the day, I'm, go ahead. I'm interested. See, I, I'm going to challenge you there on that because I'm interested in what the UFC's financials look like when it comes to their live events. And I'm going to use the WWE as an example because we know what their live event numbers are because they present that number during investor calls. 2020 was one of their... 2020 was their record-breaking revenue year. And a big piece of that is because they did not have to travel. They did not have, and they travel more than the UFC does. They didn't have to travel for their house shows that they do every week and for the pay-per-views that they do every month because of the pandemic. And that allowed them to switch over to their location in Florida and, and have their events at that location without having to deal with those travel fees. The same way with the UFC, they were they were able to 
switch over to UFC Apex, use that location, and also go out to Fight Island where they got that stipend from the Abu Dhabi government. So I wonder what their what their expenses look like compared to the revenue that those um, events brought in from fans. Because we know every event didn't do numbers like major pay-per-views did. So I would like to see what those numbers look like before I say that they need live gates as much as they're as much as they're saying that they leave like as much as they're saying that they need live gates. They need content on television, which is what you saw with them trying to get stuff up even to get stuff on ESPN because they needed that content on TV. But as far sure. as having fans in attendance, I would like to see what their uh, their financials look like before we make that call. I don't know that they need it like to survive, but I know they want to maximize their money. And part of maximizing their money is is going going. It's like be, being a recording artist. It's great that you send your music out online, and and maybe touring doesn't make. Maybe you have to work harder for that money, or there's a bigger risk with the money. But also, it helps sow the seeds for future releases you have when you when they get to see that live show, they get to see that fighter, meet that fighter. Uh, meet other fighters, get to be in the event, that helps carry over to the next pay-per-view. That helps carry over to the next event because there's something about just being there. There's a certain amount of energy. It helps the bottom line at the end of the day because those person-to-person interactions help spread the sport, help develop new fans, help um, bring attention to the sport and get more more sources of revenue from you know different cities that want to be a part of it. And when you just stay in one or two spots, the UFC is big enough where they can, I guess, navigate that, but it wouldn't allow them to maximize the money. That's what they want. They're greedy. They want it all. They could probably do well and make a lot of money doing this, but they want to make sure they maintain a somewhat of a chokehold over the sport. And you can't do that going from one um, recording from one area. It just nobody does that. You know, when you do a movie, you don't just release in America, you release in every kind of country, every sort of area. To maximize the earnings when you're a recording artist you go on tour when you're a boxing person you know they might go to just they go to vegas and everything but there's cards all over the country that help build up these fighters and help build up their fan bases so that you have people traveling from kansas to las vegas from florida to las vegas from new york to las vegas because they've seen and heard so much of the fighter they have so many memories based off of the live event that they went to or the live event they witnessed i mean a knockout it's like you see certain fights and you have a crowd, the impact of that fight is even more so. It's even more dramatic. It's even more viral. It even spreads even more because of the energy. They don't have that there. And the UFC knows that's part of what helps them sell their sell their fighters is, is what they are and to make them such a, a permanent part as far as the, um, as far as the I guess, the lexicon of mixed martial arts. The fans matter. They matter as far as money. They matter as far as potential earnings moving forward. That's why the NBA wants their fans. That's why the NFL wants their fans. That's why boxing wants their fans. If it didn't mean anything, these guys are cheap. They don't want to pay for anything. They don't have to. So if it didn't mean anything, they wouldn't do it. So the fact that they're doing it tells me that it means something. Yeah, I wonder what it... I, I, I would be interested in figuring out more of that because I feel like this is more of a posturing situation than anything else um, and that it may not be as needed as we believe it to be. One big thing of this UFC, of this card, UFC 261, is we're going to see Kamara Usman fight Jorge Masvidal for the second time. And 
I saw a lot of people like shrugging at this fight, and I'm kind of in the same boat too. Does this because they had um, who were Jessica Andrade was fighting Valentina Shevchenko, and Wiley Jang and Rose Namajunas were fighting as well. Those are two fights that were enough to get me interested in this card. This third fight, which will probably be the main event now, it overshadows them. Unfortunately, does this make this card more interesting to you, Shawan, or should it have gone somewhere else? Well, given I, the I, I, I joked about it, said, does this make this a COVID a COVID worthy call? Or a card like does this make this okay? I wasn't going to risk risk getting COVID before this fight was uh, added, but now I'm okay risking risking getting COVID now that I'm going to see Usman Masvidal too. Well, I mean, as far as the matchup, no, but Usman does. Ha- I mean, not Usman Masvidal has a segment of people who kind of lean towards him and are interested in what he has to say and, and how he comes across and how he fights and the and the charisma he brings across. You know, I mean, they brought. It's like when they brought Nate Diaz in last second for Conor McGregor. They were trying to get somebody who would take the fight and somebody who would be able to have a character or a fan base that would would make it worth its while. Who else in the welterweight division sells? Gilbert Burns? Wonder Boy? The only other person who really might have any, who might be able to move a needle at all is Colby Covington. And he's really not the star that all his antics make him out to be. There's There's one star in the division, and it's not the champion either. It's... Jorge Masvidal. Any fight with him is at this point a main event fight because because of all the momentum he's got and, and the fact he took advantage of his opportunity to increase his Q rating and to spread out in the sport and outside of the sport. Kamara Usman wants to make money. Kamara Usman wants to be a name in the sport. And even though this isn't the toughest matchup for him, it is a matchup where Masvidal is good enough and has had enough skills that he's beaten a lot of high-level welterweights. And it's also the fact that he, they, they can always sell it as well, Masvidal took the fight on two weeks' notice. He wasn't ready to fight. He wasn't prepared for Usman. You know, now that he's prepared, we're going to see another fight, whether that's true or not. That's a that's a storyline you could build up around it. He's the BMF. He wasn't ready. Now he's fully prepared. He's going to be locked in. His performance is going to be better. Kamara Usman is in trouble. And then given how much trouble Kamara Usman had with Gilbert Burns early, a lot of people are probably thinking, well, what if, what if Masvidal would have got him like that early? Masvidal would have finished him. Masvidal's a good finisher when he gets somebody hurt. So if Masvidal can can bring some of that magic back for that fight, maybe he gets Usman out of there. You know, there's there's storylines and there's avenues to victory to the casual fans that, that could help you sell that. But that's basically a money grab by the UFC. Nobody else who's going to fight in Kamaru Usman is going to draw any interest. I don't care how much they've won. I don't care how they looked. Outside of Colby Covington, nobody else is going to generate any sort of interest inside or outside of the sport. So they went with a guy who's guaranteed to get him a buy rate, a guy who's guaranteed to get him some money, a guy who's going to guaranteed to help them stay on the front page of ESPN or Fox Sports or whatever sport is covering it because he has he has a name and he has a, a fan base that's heavily invested in him. At the end of the day, they just want to make money. At the end of the day, Kamar Uzma wants to make money. He wants to be the greatest, but he doesn't want to be the greatest without being properly compensated and it's going to be hard to be properly compensated against guys like wonder boy leon edwards and whoever else is in division do you think he gets 50 45 again i would like to say there's no chance that happens i i really like to think that that if he's in better condition he might take a little he might take some more chances he might be willing to extend exchanges he might be able to 
to um, deny takedowns long enough to get some work done. I like to say that. Um, I'm just going to say he, it can't be as bad as it was the first fight. It can't possibly. I mean, is is limited is even though Usman's a better wrestler and he's a better athlete, the fact of the matter is Jorge, if nothing else, has been a longtime MMA journeyman. He's got he's competent, if not very skilled in every single a- aspect of, of MMA, whether it's grappling, kickboxing, boxing, wrestling. Um, I have to believe some of that poor showing was the fact that he was not acclimated with Usman's athleticism and he wasn't in physical condition enough to really push the pace or to take certain chances. So if he's in a better he's in better condition, then I believe he'll take more chances, and I believe he'll be able there'll be spots where he can get to Usman in. Usman's usually when he's faced guys, guys have had limited success against him, except for Jorge, and I, I have to attribute that some of it to Usman's style and his physicality, but also some of it to um, Jorge not being in fighting shape, having to cut so much weight and not being at his very best. I don't know how much of a difference it makes. But I can't imagine he he loses every single round like he did the first fight. I would I would have to think there's going to be some kind of improvement. I hope he loses every single round, and I hope he loses it even worse. Like even if he gets stopped, I don't know if I want him to get stopped like the first round or the end of the fourth, something ridiculous. But I hope he loses that fight, and I hope he loses it even worse. Um, boxing. Let's go there real quick. And talk about the uh, Estrada versus Gomez fight. Schwan, how did you score it first? Let's start there. Um, I went seven five, maybe uh, maybe eight four. Chocolatito. I don't. So you had a fifteen thirteen. Yeah, it was a close. It was in a sense, it was a close fight because it was highly, highly competitive. Both guys were maintaining their conditioning. Both guys were landing good. Most guys were showing good defense and counters. And neither guy resorted to a clinch. They weren't clinching and hugging. They were fighting their way into clinches, fighting out of clinches. And it was such a good technical fight that the ref very rarely had to get involved. He just got the stand back and essentially watch the fight. But I felt Chocolatito landed more shots. and I felt like he landed the cleaner, more damaging shots. And I'm not quite sure what they favored over Estrada. Maybe Estrada's activity. Maybe the fact that Estrada didn't ever really seem overwhelmed by the power and, and, and the punches landing. But I felt, I felt it was fought at the pace that Chocolatito wanted. It was fought at the intensity he wanted. And when Estrada was trying to Rashada had moments, but when he was trying to really take over rounds or really put one or two rounds together, he was able—he was never able to do so. He was ne- never able to impose his will physically. He was never able to use his volume. And when it came to technical boxing, even though he was competitive, he was never really able to close the gap or overtake Chocolatito. So, um, like I said, I'm not quite sure what they were watching. I'm, I'm guessing maybe, maybe, I'm, I just really don't know. And I feel bad for Chocolatito because he's an all-time great. And now he's got another loss on his career when he essentially should have a win that says that, you know, that he's really maintained his potency as a fighter, even in the later stage of his career, as he's moved up ways, he still managed to be world-class and elite. So it's kind of a shame because it's going to put a mark on his career. And even though we all can say, well, he didn't really lose it. The fact of the matter is on the records is going to say that he lost it. And it was just more of a result of bad judging. Like I said, it wasn't like the guy he fought was totally outclassed. But it seemed pretty clear that he was outworked, outpunched, and essentially outboxed for the majority of the fight. And they just ignored all the work that uh, Chocolatito was doing for the most part. Carlos Sucre, he scored at 117, 111. Like, how did, and he was, he's subsequently been suspended for it, and they're going to investigate him. 
But how do you do that? Like, how do you score a fight that's widely looked at as a draw or very close for Gomez, 117-111? You just ignore what the other guy does completely. And some guys do that. They they get on a certain person or maybe, you know, some people say they were paid or whatever you want to call it. The fact of the matter is they key in on one person and one person's style and one person's approach. And everything that person does is highlighted and everything that the other person does is muted. This is what it really comes down to. You know, one guy lands four punches. We ignore that. Oh, that one guy landed that one counter punch. It's like you're looking for things. And I don't know if it's a matter of if he's crooked. I don't know if he just doesn't know what he's looking at. Or I don't know if he just has an actual bias to a certain fighter and, and a fight style. But the fact of the matter is, to me, he, he missed and he missed badly. I don't think I would call the fight a draw. In best case scenario, it was 7-5 to me. Okay. So last thing I want to talk about today is the um... – Passing of Marvin Hagler, where, uh, you know, he died, I think, on Saturday. I believe it was Saturday. Uh, we, everyone saw the news. And what's your favorite Marvin Hagler uh, memory? Uh, probably just the Hearns fight. Because, I mean, that was, like, the most vicious four, three, four rounds in boxing history. He took shots that nobody should talk. Nobody had been able to take from Hearns. And he took them flush. And he turned the fight. And he broke them down. It was, it was one of the best fights one of the best shootouts in the history of the sport the big the fondest memory i have of him is he's is he a guy who he's two things one as fights went on he always was supportive of the younger the younger generation he was never like i'm better than this guy people said this guy's better than him he's like hey you know good luck to him i hope he is better than me he never had that bitterness or that that need to stay in the spotlight like somebody like carl frotch who takes every opportunity to take a shot at somebody or to inject himself in when anybody seems like they're close to taking his spot is the name boxer in his particular area of the world. Um, he, um, Hagler never did that. And mostly it's the fact that Hagler is a guy who had like 45, 50 fights before he even got a title. He was like a veteran veteran before he even got a shot at the title. He had cleaned out divisions, completely dominated divisions, had guys on the run from him, and he could just never get his shot. And he just stayed the course and kept consistently beating guys and dominating guys and, and improving. And he, he he pretty much earned his spot. Every fighter earns their spot in one way or another. But he was a guy nobody wanted, who nobody wanted to give a chance, and they kept help, hoping somebody would knock him off or they would catch him on a bad day or he wouldn't be as focused or not as prepared. And he always came to do his job consistently and effectively. And as a result, he put himself in position to get a title, and he got it. And he was one of the greatest, um, most courageous, and most skilled champions out there you know i mean he really really he was like bernard hopkins except worse people just did not want this man to get a title and he never lost his focus he never felt sorry for himself he never took a fight lightly and he earned everything he had i mean to think that you have some guys aren't even gonna have 50 fights in their career i think he had close to 50 fights where he got a world title shot you know i mean what kind of dedication and poise do you have to have when they're throwing every second and third rate guy or every guy who's a who's a world-class guy who doesn't have a name and your reputation and your chance for a title fight is on the line every single time you fight because all they need is one loss to excuse you from the world championship talks. All they need is one loss to excuse you from being one of the elites. So he could never afford to lose. He could never afford to have a bad showing. And he just was just a model of consistency as far as his intensity, his skill set, and his preparation. Where does he rank on your all-time list? Oh, man, I don't know. I'm a big Sugar Ray fan. Sugar Ray Leonard, Sugar Ray Robinson. Uh, at his weight class, probably one or two. And I don't know who the two would be. Overall, 
Uh, man, I guess definitely top 10, probably somewhere between top, top one to seven. Well, not one, I'd say between five and seven, I would give him five to seven. All right. Okay. No Good thoughts there, sir. Good thoughts. So, um, let's then move on and let's close out this today's show and let everybody know what you're working on and let's go from there. Um, I'm working on a, uh, Article, it should be coming out this week because they have the Snyder Cut version of Justice League. I did a breakdown of the fighting styles and strategies. Are you going to watch that? It's four hours. I'm probably going to. I mean, I'm a comic dude. I'm probably got to watch it just to see what it's about. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I uh, subscribe to HBO Max just for that. Not just for that. That's a lie because I want to see Godzilla versus Kong probably uh, more than anything. A, a lot, when they had the Snyder Cut, a lot of people got on just so they could see it. I mean, they had like 50,000 people sign a, maybe over 100,000 at this point, sign a way saying that they supported it and they wanted it. I mean, that's a lot of people. I mean, going to movie theaters, what's movie theaters, like $10, $13 for a ticket? That's a lot of money right off the bat. So I expect, expected to have a huge reaction. I expect to have a huge reaction after the day after and when people see it. And I'm going to try to take advantage of that and and get this, this piece off where I'm breaking down Wonder Woman uh, the Bat- Wonder Woman fight scene with the uh, Ares, um, Batman fight scene in the warehouse, and one of the fight scenes from Superman where he's fighting one of the other Kryptonians, and kind of just break down how the styles, what styles and techniques they're using, and how that reflects who they are as heroes as far as the intensity or the approach they take and why they take it. And then also, I have a piece should be coming out the next day that's going to be addressing the characters that'll be appearing in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So I'll have breakdowns of fighting sequences with george st pierre with the black widow uh agent carter winter soldier and i'm expecting to get some uh really good uh feedback and really good returns as far as clicks for those two pieces i think it's two two of my better pieces i consider my captain america piece to be one of probably the best one i've done and i would say these two are pretty close on par with that if not better if this snyder cut movie sucks i'm i'm blaming you not even gonna lie you and Mike, because I know he's probably listening to both he's both of y'all's fault. Um, what am I working on? Pro wrestling as usual, trying to get back into mixed martial arts writing slowly but surely. I'm doing that. Uh, I hope to get some comment content up on ratings this week. But yeah, outside of that, man, just staying in staying in the grind, trying to get this vaccine so I can go out, run the streets, and do hot boy shit again this summer. Hot boy summer. Apple summer all over. It's just going to be the hottest of summers if everyone gets vaccinated by like. Oh, yeah. It's going to be crazy out there. It's going to be out of control, man. It's going to be out of control. It's going to be bad. It is going to be. If you've been cooped up for almost a year and a half, it's going to be. It's just going to be crazy. I might not be able to leave the house. Nuclear heat. Nuclear heat. That might be best. I'm past that point. (laughs) My kids took it out of me. I'm past that point. Well, that's, that's, that's your fault. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah we're gonna go ahead and close out man thank you again we'll be back here next week for episode 199 of the mma mma ratings podcast um, my name is rafael garcia with Schwan humes catch me at r garcia underscore sports Schwan at uh black jordan green and we'll be back next week everyone have a great day have a good evening guys